Good morning again. If you're visiting, my name is Peter. I serve as the lead pastor of the Springs. And more importantly, I serve on the team of elders that leads the church. Now, tonight, today, oh, I said tonight. It's not even on my notes. Today, we, uh, we're week, week nine of our Gospel is for Everyone series. It was, it's a study in the book of Romans alongside our church in Austin. We've been going through Romans as slowly as we can. Um, it's a very rich book. It's hard to go fast. Um, today, I'll endeavor to preach 14 verses, which is a lot in Romans, and we're in Romans 6. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet to honor God's Word. Romans 6, verses 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. The word of the Lord. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your word. We ask that you would add a supernatural blessing to the reading of your word. Lord, each day, and especially in church, wherever we are, we tend to operate mostly in the level of our own awareness. The the material realities that we see or the emotional perceptions that we feel, that's kind of the zone that we're often in mostly. But all the while, there are deeper realities that are more real than what we see playing out all around us. There's angels and demons. There's sovereign grace and providence, whether we see it or not. 
There's principalities and strongholds and spiritual powers influencing us. And they're not just influencing our brains, but our minds and our, our wills and our emotions. But more importantly, your spirit is drawing us, inviting us, men and women, to, to die and to live again and to kill sin. So, Lord, I pray that you would align our vision and our perspective with, more with yours as we unpack the mystery of your word. Minister to us powerfully like you've done with saints of old. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you're taking notes, today we're embracing the mystery. Everyone say mystery. We're embracing the mystery of how we are dead to sin and alive in Christ. Now before we go any further and really unpack this text, I'm going to spend a lot of time preparing us. Long introduction that I want to prepare us for as before we go any further in Romans 6 or 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. It's really important. I pray that we as a church would be live oaks and not china berries. Now, I grew up in Oregon where that didn't make any sense to me. We don't have those trees, and I'm hoping that it'll make sense to you, but let me just remind you where I came from. I grew up just a regular, religious, self-righteous, perverted, normal kid. That was the reality I lived in and understood. And through a campus ministry in my high school, I became something totally different, categorically different, a faith in Jesus person. This thing that I've been unlocking the mystery to in the last 20 years, 21 years, has been growing in me. Now, in Oregon, where I grew up, it's not hot and humid like this. And we have these, I grew up kind of with this this majesty of seeing mountains and huge ponderosa pine trees. I remember someone went to my hometown and came back to Texas and said, man, there's trees that are bigger than buildings up there. I'm like, yeah, that's kind of what trees are, but never mind. (laughs) Now, coming down here to Texas, I I really mourned the, the cool mountain air. And I really mourned some of the majesty in the ponderosa trees and some things like that. But as I grew here, I started to love things that we have here. And I'm not just talking about Whataburger and HEB, which are great. But specifically, live oak trees is categorically something that's foreign, was foreign to my understanding growing up. Y'all have trees like live oak trees that grow slowly and they grow sideways sometimes. Y'all have trees here. We have trees here. I'm a Texan now. We have trees that grow sideways. Live oak trees can grow sideways like this because they're weather hardened and their roots go deep. Now, I pray as a church, as it relates to really unpacking and wading through Scripture like this, we'd, we'd be a church that are battle hardened by real tests of our faith and understanding that would develop fortitude and deep roots in the Bible. But a strength like this, it's very uncommon in our culture. 
Sadly, in our culture, in our generation's soil, as it were, the last few decades, especially of American affluence, it's more common to, instead of being like a live oak tree, to be more like a chinaberry tree. Chinaberry trees spread rapidly, but they're, you know, they actually grow way quicker. They, they spread rapidly. They grow quicker. And actually, in the spring, they emit a blossom that smells really good for all of one week. But they're known for falling over, for toppling over quickly due to their weak wood grain structure and integrity and shallow, shallow roots. We have a row of chinaberry trees outside our house, right next to our kids' rooms. And if I don't cut those down soon, they risk killing my kids in a storm. And my concern as it relates to us in going through Romans is that if we give in, knowingly or unknowingly, to our over, overly impatient, overly pragmatic, meaning, you know, give me a list to do, microwave Instagram Christianity, where we initially approach church as if we're patrons to be served and entertained rather than disciples to be disciplined and strengthened by God's word, I'm, I'm afraid that if this is the soil we're in and we try to grow in, then we'll be less like live oak trees that kill sin and more like chinaberry trees that kill faith. In Christian history, there's actually been very few examples, from my understanding, of strong faith in times of affluence. Really, the live oak faith in the saints of old are like the Puritans. These people were put in prisons for their proclamation, and yet they were way more free than their captors. This is what real faith does. So I beg of you to think deeply about hard doctrines like we're going to dig into today. It's easy to, in a shallow sense, kind of mentally gloss over things like Romans 6. Kind of like, well, I don't really get it. Let me just kind of check out implicitly until we get to like Romans 12, which I can kind of, I can, I can draw that a little easier in my mind. Please don't say, or don't allow yourself to say something like, well, I'm not really the, the thinking type. I'm not really the theology type. Now, I can relate to that. But listen, the, the so-called experts of culture and demographers of our day, the people who make up words like boomer and generation X or Z or millennials, they don't have the right to define you, amen? Now, that's, a, that's pretty easy to amen, but, but let, me, let me tell you something else. You don't have the right to define you either. You can't say to God, I'm not the thinking type, when he's the one who gave you your brain. He made it. It's an insult to him. And we need to be able to say, God, I render to you the rights of defining who I am. And your word tells me who I am. So if you're a Christian, this doctrine that we're going over today, the doctrine of regeneration, meaning just the recreation of our being by grace through faith, it's a mystery that we embrace. It's a treasure that we dig deeper into. We, we add fascination to our salvation, which is the whole regeneration thing. It's salvation, how we're saved, made new. If you're a Christ follower, you need to know that what happened to you was not that you got your life right. 
You didn't uh, make yourself better or turn over a new leaf or get things right with God, like words that I used to say. Even if you're a super devout person from early youth and you got a medal in VBS or Awanus, you didn't grow into your faith. Faith was born into you, and today by faith we can choose to grow in that that he gave us. No one gets a medal for being born. (laughs) That's kind of mom's work, right? God gives us faith, and we glorify him as a result. He's the glorious one who gives. Now, if you're not a Christian, let me encourage you. You'll never be good enough. Now, you might say, how is that encouraging? Let me tell you. If you can settle that Jesus knew that you would never be good enough, And he came to be good enough for you. And he lived the life that you should have lived. And he died the death that you should have died. For not living the life that we should have lived. And he rose again from the dead so that he could confer to us this born again regeneration thing that we're going to talk about. It gives us peace and it sets us at ease. And our mind is is bent towards fascination and deeper understanding because there are times, whether you're a Christian or not yet a Christian, we're being called by God to be fascinated with what he does. And in times like today, and going over Romans 6, we need to allow the roots of our trust to sink deeper than the roots of our understanding. Trusting that our understanding will eventually catch up with the mind of God, the person in whom we trust. I have decades of Christian experience and foolishness and heartache and a little bit of triumph to be very confident for very many reasons that the Bible is truer than my best thoughts, which are easily confused and deceived. So here we go. I told you it would be a long introduction. I delivered on that promise. We're going to dig into the text now. And today we'll embrace the tension of two Mysteries. Number one, you have died to sin. If you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, you have died to sin. Now, mystery number two is an imperative. It's a command that we see here in this text, and I summarize it as this. Sin must now die to you. So you have died to sin, and sin must now die to you. We're going to talk about how it can be that both of those are individually true, and yet at the same time, true at the, true at the same time. It's a paradox. Number one, you've died to sin. Now, if you check your pulse, my wife's really good at this. I'm terrible at it. Sometimes I freak myself out like, oh, wait a minute, I'm not dead if I can think about it, right? Check your pulse. Turns out you're not dead, right? Can you all confirm that? Okay. I'm pretty sure you're not too. So Congratulations. So what does it mean here when it says that we've died? It's got to mean something different than like, I I died in a way that I understand that makes sense, right? What does this spiritual death maybe mean that he's talking about? So verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Meaning, are are we just supposed to just be okay with the habitual sin just like we used to have? No, it says no, by no means, verse 2. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? No. Paul's saying, you can't just continue in your old ways. You're dead. 
we're not supposed to just understand that as much as we trust what Paul's saying. Now, a little context here. Paul's just laid out for five chapters the mystery of how we're justified by Jesus, by this overwhelming good gift of Jesus. And many theologians think that chapter 6, he's responding to some hyper-conservative Jewish scoffers that would say things to Paul like, oh, we're not going to embrace this faith. We, we do good to not sin based on our own best efforts. And you're just preaching this false, cheap grace gospel that says, okay, I just kind of believe in Jesus and then go on doing whatever I want. And that's what Paul's responding to here. He's saying, no, it's, it's not that. How can you just go on being the same? You're dead. And Paul's not answering their question. He's not explaining their scoffing. He's, he's really bearing out implications. He's not giving explanations. He's saying, no, 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 you, that can't be like that, where we just presume upon the grace of God and keep sinning. You're dead. The person who would want to do something like that, dead. He doesn't really explain it. He just bears out a deeper part of the mystery, and he goes on to verse 3. Do you not know? So this is so cool. We, he points out twice in our text some things that we're supposed to know, even though it do, I don't know if we can quite understand it fully. Do you not, means that there's something deeper in the knowledge of God, amen? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, and therefore with him in baptism, into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, By the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So in verses 3 through 4 here, he doesn't explain verses 1 and 2. He just goes deeper into them and adds in, folds in this greater mystery about what really happened in our baptism. We thought it was just some religious symbol, which in one sense it was. We thought it was just a, you know, kind of a, a, a thing that we did. No, it was deeper than this. He doesn't explain it. He just goes deeper into this. And we're supposed to just hear what Paul's saying and believe and trust, even if we don't quite understand. I never thought that I would, in my preaching, come hard after Stevie Wonder, but I have to. Remember, it was him who falsely asserted that if you believe in things, you don't understand that it makes you what? What, what is that? He, he claims that it makes you superstitious. That's right. Come on, where's, isn't that the 80s? That's not the word? If you believe in things you don't understand? But very, very superstitious. Sorry, I was going ahead a little bit, and you guys were slow. But now you're, now you're coming along. This suffering induced by believing in things that we don't understand. Is it superstitious? Are you superstitious if you believe in things you don't understand? What if you're just reverent? What if you're conscientiously, thoughtfully embracing mystery, comfortable with your own intellectual limits? What if you believe in things you don't understand Because you're deferential. You defer to God the understanding of faith. A faith that's the substance of things that you really hope for. The evidence of things that you have not seen. 
of a God who you have blood-bought reasons to trust in? What if you're not superstitious? What if you're judicious? You're, you're discerning. You're wise. You're saying, no, this goes here. This goes there. God's higher than me. His thoughts are above my thoughts, and his ways are above my ways. And I trust the word of God, and I'm growing to understand the mystery of it. You died. Your baptism legally affirms that you've attached to a death that's yours, and therefore you get to enter into and grow in a life that's yours. And he keeps bearing out this mystery. Verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. I think progressively brought, brought to nothing. We'll, see, we'll get into that in the next point. But so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for the one who has died to sin has been set free from sin. Now, as in our next point, we're going to talk more about freedom and the implications of how we fight. But let's stop here and just this mystery that he just keeps laying down, that we have died to sin the best way I can take a shot at this mystery is 13 years ago in a couple months, I got married to my wife, Elisa, who's back in the, with the kids today. On that day, I, in essence, became dead to all other women, at least romantically speaking. On that day, there was a powerful covenant taking place that was way deeper than my understanding, and yet I said, I do to something that's a deeper mystery than the words that I could utter. And that's much like our covenant with Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid the full bride price for his marriage to us. He paid to cancel the bondage of our old lovers so that we'd be fully free to be attached to him in forever unbroken relationship. And so covenantally speaking, when did my old self die? The the self that could claim the so-called rights to do whatever I want with whomever I want? That person died not not just in 2006 when I got married and not just in 1997 when I was born again or in 1983 when I was born. That person of me legally died in 33 AD outside of Jerusalem on a Roman cross. And if you have faith in Jesus, that's when you died to your rights to go on sinning. And it gets better than this. Verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. So when Jesus rose from the dead, he conclusively certified that you died with him, you were crucified with him, and now you have his new life. He made a perfect bridge, again, we talked about this last week, from God to relationship with former sinners. Now, I say former sinners because that's who we are. Do we still sin? Yes. But who you are can no longer be defined by that dead old self that Jesus crucified by substitution. You're dead to sin, number one. But number two, now sin must die to you. And this is the mystery of how 
we can be dead to sin and yet still need to kill sin. Is Paul preaching perfectionism here? When we read this text, we should be a little bit uncomfortable, and it's natural to ask questions like, well, if I'm supposed to be dead to sin, right, if I still have a propensity to sin, does that mean that I'm not truly saved? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Now, the overwhelming pattern of my sin, though I went to, I was a CEO Christian growing up. I went to, you know, church Christmas, Easter only, CEO. I, I went to church, and I said, Jesus, I think I believe in Jesus, but he wasn't my Lord. I, I didn't know him. I wasn't born again. So the pattern of my life really did reveal the state of my heart. But there's been patterns since then that have had to become broken, where I, can, I have to attach myself to this reality and say, I have faith, but because of this seed of faith, I now have the power and command to root out any other seed. So for you today, ask the Holy Spirit, where am I in that? If you're in a place where you have a root of faith, you have affection for the Savior, for Jesus, but you still have sin, let's read on slowly to see that God is not saying that he demands perfectionism. In fact, he is responding to a false gospel that demanded a perfectionism that they could never perform. Verse 11, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ Jesus. Small context, if there's a command of something you must do about sin, there's implicitly no shame for that thing to have to happen, right? If God says you need to make war, he's not telling you that you should be ashamed that there's a war waging. He's commanding you, look, you died to this old kingdom and now you got to fight it. That's how we can understand we are dead to sin, and yet sin must now die to us. When it says here, consider yourselves dead, a few weeks ago we saw this word, logisomai, has one of the roots that we get our word logic from, where God counted us righteous by faith in Jesus. And now he's saying to us, count yourselves, fight to count yourself dead to the old lovers and powers and principalities and count yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Attribute the death of Jesus as your own. Assign it to yourself, to your past. Change your mind every day about who you think you are and render his thoughts as your own through the word of God. Detach from the logic that your life is your own. And do it every day. There's no shame in having to do that. That's why he's given us the church. He's given us the, the sanctified habit of communion. He's given us the Bible. He's given us the spirit and the gifts so that we can obey what he's saying right here. Not to have a shame that we have to do this. In a sense, we've departed from our old kingdom and now we live in 
a new realm where we fight the old kingdom. There's a, a book that I read this last year of a woman who left North Korea. And it makes me think about this reality of having to fight the kingdom that we once belonged to. She, uh, her name is, I have to look at it to pronounce it, Yong Seo Lee. She wrote a book called The Girl with Seven Names. The Girl with Seven Names. As she grew up, she became more and more aware of the oppression that many of her family members and country persons, the oppression that they took comfort in. Almost like, you know, the kingdom of sin that was controlling them rather than freeing them. And all with the promise of freedom. Isn't that much like sin? Sin promises us, oh, this is going to be good for you. You're going to love it. You're going to be really free. But it it gives us more bondage. And that's so much like the oppression she lived under in North Korea. And she slowly started to understand this up until the moment in her adulthood where she had an opportunity to flee by escaping to the other side of the river. And she had to look in her, with the encouragement of her mother, "You, you can do this. She had to basically say, well, there's never a way for me to come back across this river again. I might never see my brother or my mother again, and I have to do it. And she did it. But in the months following, for her to maintain her freedom, she had to fight the thoughts that the comfort of her old life that once defined her were things that she could be drawn back to. She had to know that for me to step into this new life, there's no way I can go back. And similarly, we need to understand this, that when we step into the kingdom of God, there's no shame for the, the thoughts of that old kingdom, but there's also no retreat. We have to kill those thoughts. You are dead to sin. You can't go back if you have faith in Jesus. He holds you, and his hand is stronger than any other temptation in your life. And he's saying, kill. Kill sin. Verse 12, let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. This reality of freedom granted that we still have to fight for, we've talked about this week, earlier this year with Juneteenth, but I have more thoughts about it. Wednesday, we celebrated Juneteenth, and we were all reminded of there was a, a whole group, thousands of people, namely the, the Texas slaves at the time, who were legally free for a month and a half, or two and a half months from the Emancipation, Emancipation Proclamation in, in April of 1865 to June 19th, 1865. They were legally free and didn't know it the suppression of the truth caused them to continue to walk in bondage. They were deceived into thinking that they still had to obey their former masters, but they didn't. They didn't have to obey. They had to conscientiously fight that lie. And what Paul is saying here in verse 12 is, no, you do not have to obey sin anymore. You no longer have sin as your master. That slave of sin has died, and now you are free, but free to fight. And this relates a lot to Juneteenth, because 
There were people that, that were set free and they rejoiced, but then they had to go on fighting. And the thing about our culture that's worse than the kingdom of God is that their former slave masters still voted in the democratic society that could still have a say in their ongoing freedom. Their former slave masters still voted, and therefore we have these, these essentially re-enslavements that have happened since then. Jim Crow laws and things like that. Understanding this, you need to know, do not even let sin have a vote in your life. The kingdom of God is not a democracy. It's way better. It is a monarchy where Christ Jesus, the king, must reign supreme in your body, in your thoughts, in your emotions, in your life plans, in your career ambitions. He must reign supreme and sin must die. You're dead to that old self that felt you had to obey sin. Now you're alive in a new war that you can kill it. Verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you. That's a promise as much as it's a command. Since you are not under the law, but under grace. Now it says here twice, you you don't present your, your parts of you, your your, any sort of part of your body, your mind, as instruments of unrighteousness. The, the word here used is like, literally like tools. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're a tool for righteousness. <laughs> All right, no, no insults. You're a tool for righteousness. Now, the word here too could also be defined weapon. God has given us that which were weapons for unrighteousness. I remember I used, you know, God gave me a, a, a gift of evangelism, and I used to evangelize for darkness, convince people to win them to myself. And I was using my members as tools for unrighteousness, as weapons for the devil. And when I became born again, he said, well, let me tell you why I designed you the way you are. And you don't have to just be ashamed of your actions, but aim them by the Spirit for the kingdom of God, a better kingdom. Use your members, your evangelism, your hospitality, your compassion, your delight, your joy as instruments, tools, weapons for the kingdom of God. You're dead to sin. You're dead to the other kingdom. Now you have weapons of warfare to kill it dead. This requires a little bit of judgmentalism. I think people wrongly think that when we talk about sin, you know, we're being judgmental. We talked about this in Romans 2. In my life, in the last few decades, I've been so often grieved at my incapacity or passivity to rightly be judgmental of myself. I've been grieved by not judging my thoughts and in waging war against my old self and allowing the consequences to play out in dark ways in my relationships with God and others. I've been grieved at friends of mine 
who have not been judgmental enough of themselves. And now their children and their spouses are held hostage by their inability to rightly fight. We're to fight sin. We don't, we don't allow ourselves to attach intimately to sin. We, we can self-identify with sin in so many wrong ways. And it's not just the, the sexual self-identification. I know a friend of mine who was just as perverse as me, but he has not got saved yet. And recently, he, uh, there's this new word in our culture. I had, to, I had to look it up when I first saw him post it. Oh, polyamorous. So now... He's just kind of come out as someone who can't be faithful to people and control himself. And there's like this woke new word to define himself by it. And we're supposed to all celebrate it, right? But maybe you don't self-identify in ways like that. But here's what we do with sin, where we allow it to get too intimate with us. We'll say things about ourselves like, well, I'm not, I'm not good with money. I don't save. I'm not generous. And God's saying, oh, I know that person. That person's dead. That's not who you are. You died to that lie, and now the lie must die. Or we can say things like, I'm an angry person. And God says, who said that you're naked? Who said that you're that way? Who told you that? Or I am insecure or shy or harsh or lazy Or maybe you don't self-identify with sin like that, but how often do we allow sin to kind of play a part in our structures for comfort? You know, like coping mechanisms. If sin is a part of your arsenal and coping mechanisms, let me tell you, Jesus can give you new strategies. Confessing sin. And I'll give you an example. Like, I've known people who maybe even this is, we saw uh, an article about how moms are doing this a lot. Christian moms are putting their kids down. It's stressful, right? So just a, a little bit of wine to take the edge off, but then a little more, and it's just flat-out drunkenness. We're allowing what we thought was our freedom to enslave us again. And, we're, and, and Paul's saying, don't let that which you've been freed of reintroduce you to slavery. Whether it's doing things that are clearly not written in the Bible or just doing other things. Here's what, here's what I do that, that the Holy Spirit's been telling me lately. You need to stop. I'll go on Instagram and I'll look up sports videos. And you know the power of the addiction of Instagram. It's like another one, another one, another one. Oh, go Spurs, go. And before you know it, this is not faith. I am now a machine of my old self. Does the Bible say anything about Instagram sports videos? No, but it says in Romans 14. We'll get there in maybe next year. I don't know. Later, the Bible says whatever is not done in faith is sin. And so here in Romans 6, we, we need to know that, that that propensity that can't see those habits or that too easily identifies with them or takes comfort in things that don't bring us life, don't draw us near to Jesus, that thing died and now you need to kill it. It's this mystery. The mystery that we've died, but yet we still need to keep fighting. It's a paradox. The Christian life bears a mysterious, already not yet paradox. 
You've died to sin, but you still need to be killing sin. You're still fighting for freedom, even though you were set free. You're already saved, but you're not yet perfected. And it's really helpful to, to remember the, the outline of salvation that I've heard other people lay down. That justification, we talked about a few weeks ago, frees us from the penalty of sin. Sanctification, which is happening in the, in the present in our lives, progressively frees us from the power of sin. And glorification in the future completely frees us from the presence of sin. So when did the penalty of sin, when was it canceled out? It died almost 2,000 years ago. In the future, the, the power or the presence, the presence of sin will die when we go to be with Jesus like Jesus. But now, he's saying, you need to consider yourselves dead and you need to kill because the power of sin is lessened as we engulf on its former territories. Christian freedom is not the freedom to do what you want. It's the freedom to do what God wants. And because of regeneration, him making us new, it's the miracle of wanting what God wants. And so I'm alive in him. I'm, I'm new. And I can talk about sin. I can fight sin. I can contend from a place of victory. Remember that thing Jesus said about death that's still so mysterious? He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Let me tell you, church, you are bearing and will bear much fruit, which means there's death and killing in regards to sin. Jesus knew when he looked at our world that you know, there was a, a crop of weed, as it were, that it was, was growing and yet being choked out by weeds, weeds of sin and lies. And it, and it would seem when, when Jesus came to the earth that, that, that sin was just going to win and choke out all the things that God had planted. And so Jesus did this thing that just blew the mind of his, his disciples. He decided to die essentially choked out by the weed of sin. He was choked out. He died on the cross for our sin. And he rose to new life. So in, in essence, he could reseed the earth, not with the seed of Adam, but with his own seed, a new irreversible, unstoppable wheat crop that would now choke out sin. And so if you have faith in Jesus, you have died to sin, to that weed in your life. And now there is a incorruptible soil where you, as, as the new crop of God out of Jesus, out of his new seed, are taking over everything and weeding out sin as you grow in Jesus. That's what faith is about. We let it take root in every area of our life. Would you stand to your feet with me?